Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. I'm so excited that you're joining us today. I have been hearing about this case since before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big one and I've been working on it for a while. It's a case I know already, but I don't know all the details. And so I'm excited for Christy to dig deep and tell them to us. And because it is a big case, I think we should just get into it. It took me a moment to decide what my first case of the year would be. And so since couple killers always horrify and fascinate me, I decided I would start off with a sadistic duo. And since we are a Canadian podcast, I decided that I would pick a Canadian case. Dun dun dun. I'm guessing that most Canadians, like Melissa said, are well aware of the case I have chosen. But I'm not sure how well known it is for the rest of our listeners. All I know is that this case took Canada by storm when it happened, and people are still outraged by it decades later. It's so true. All Christy had to say was that she was covering a well-known Canadian couple killers, and I was like, oh, you're not. (laughs) And she is. I am. (laughs) This case is a beast, and I've been contemplating for a long time doing it, and I felt like the new year, all refreshed and ready to go, I'm doing it. (laughs) That break was so important. It was. And thank you guys for coming back to listen. (laughs) The amount of research I found was almost overwhelming. This is another case that could be turned into an entire series, I feel like. I will do my best to cover it for you in this episode, but honestly, I could have written multiple episodes to cover everything. I had to make myself stop writing. (laughs) Because I don't want you guys to be here till tomorrow listening to me. (laughs) You all have things to do. This murderous couple were dubbed the Ken and Barbie killers, but believe me when I tell you, there is nothing glamorous about these two disgusting dirtbags. Paul Kenneth Bernardo was born on August 27, 1964 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. From the outside looking in, Paul grew up in an ideal setting. And I just want to mention as we dive into Paul's history that a lot of his earlier years information was from a website called Criminal Behaviors and a writer named Jay Sutton published a lot of in-depth articles about Paul's earlier life. Not a lot of reports about Paul go into his childhood, but as always, we think it is relevant when discussing cases like this on Buried Motives. So I'm going to include some of the information that I got from these articles. I think it's always important that if we can find the information to share what their childhoods were like. I totally agree, because more often than not, it does play a part. Mm -hmm. The Bernardo family were middle class. They lived on a nice-sized property in a nice neighborhood with a pool. They lived in Guildwood, Scarborough, which is just east of Toronto. During Paul's birth, he suffered lack of oxygen to his brain, but didn't seem to have any notable brain damage from it. He was born with a deformity on the roof of his mouth, but was otherwise healthy He was described as an adorable, blue-eyed, blonde little boy. And I mention this lack of oxygen because some people speculate if this could have helped mold Paul into the monster he would eventually become. It would change his brain structure. I would think so. However, as we have come to learn, appearances aren't always what they seem. Paul was the youngest of three children. 
His brother David, who went by Dave, was the oldest, and his sister Deborah, or Debbie, was in the middle. The three of them were born within a four-year span. Well, that's pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Paul's mother, Marilyn, began as a typical 60s housewife. It sounded like things started out okay, but then friends of Marilyn's noticed that her self-confidence began to plummet after marrying her husband, Kenneth Bernardo. She would start to say things to her friends that suggested she was just lucky and thankful that Kenneth married her. Oh no. Marilyn volunteered as a Girl Guide leader, and Paul enjoyed the scouting program, eventually earning his Chief Scout Award. That takes some dedication. Mm-hmm. But a Boy Scout, he is not. He forgot everything he learned in Boy Scouts about being <laughs> honorable, and I don't know what the code is, but strip him of his badges. Canada wants their Boy Scout badges back. Kenneth Bernardo, Paul's father, worked as an accountant and was able to provide for his family. He was well-respected by his community and was considered a hard-working family man, but they always are from the outside looking in. Behind closed doors, Kenneth was abusive towards his family, his wife in particular. He abused Marilyn physically, verbally, and psychologically. He neglected his wife and demanded control of the house. To top it off, he was always in the sauce. So basically a raging alcoholic dirtbag. No wonder her confidence was tanking then. Mm-hmm. And friends said it was really noticeable, the change in her. So friends that had known her before she married Kenneth and still knew her after noticed a huge change. Yes. Or was there a particular instance in the marriage that all of a sudden she had lost her confidence? I think it was more of a gradual thing. Okay. Which it often is in an abusive situation. Mm-hmm. The kids witnessed the abuse their father inflicted on their mother, a common occurrence that I think had lasting effects on Paul and how he would come to view women. He may be a classic case of nature and nurture working together. It's always both. It is always both. As Paul's sister Debbie grew older, their father started sexually abusing her. And he wasn't shy about it. Everyone in the immediate family was aware of what he was doing. What? So much so, in fact, that he would sit beside her on the couch while the family watched a movie together and assault his daughter underneath the blanket that he placed over top of them. What? So he didn't even wait for behind closed doors. It's family movie night. Debbie, you're sitting by me. And he would assault her under the blanket while her brothers and mother were sitting in the same room. Eating their popcorn, watching the movie. That is despicable. Yeah, so much so. Kenneth would also peer into Debbie's window while she changed and masturbate outside. What? A neighbor reported Kenneth once after seeing him in his car outside the house trying to catch a glimpse of his daughter. Oh, what a creep. Yeah. So this is his father. This is who he's looking up to. Reportedly, Debbie became so paranoid that she would lay out noisy items like empty cans on her bedroom floor when she went to bed so she would wake up if he entered her room. And that just broke my heart. That is super sad. I cannot imagine what message this sent to Paul and his brother. Everyone knew and no one stopped it. Knowing that your mom turned a blind eye to this type of abuse especially would solidify the thinking as a young boy that men were allowed to just take whatever they wanted sexually from whomever they wanted and that they were entitled to be in control at all times. Yeah, you could see how that would be a thought process that he would develop. Mm -hmm. I think it impacted him more than people maybe necessarily realize. And does he talk about it later on? No. This isn't really well-known information about his childhood. Okay. 
And he never really takes responsibility for his actions either. So why would he say, oh, it's because of my childhood? That's true. Instead of helping her children, Marilyn became depressed and moved into the basement of their home. She basically pulled away and neglected her family. Essentially, she put her head in the sand and ignored what was happening right in front of her. Because of their mom checking out, the kids' needs like meals and clean clothes to wear were not always met. Despite this, Paul was described as a cute and happy kid. Hmm. So he was resilient. It's hard to fault a battered woman for whatever way she chooses to deal with something. Oh, it is. And I'm not, I'm not bringing that up to paint her in a bad light. Just it did have an effect on Paul. Yeah, but it does have an effect on her children for sure. At around age 10, Paul began looking at pornography, likely his dad's magazines, because he couldn't have accessed it electronically at that time. And then, when that wasn't enough to excite him, he also started peeping into women's windows, just like his dad. So interesting that path that that takes and how pornography leads to an escalation because you're no longer dealing with a real situation. And so you keep looking for more and more things that will excite you. Right. And often it turns to voyeurism. It's very true because they get kind of immune or numb to it. Mm -hmm. Also around age 10, Paul began setting small fires with his friends using magnifying glasses. And as we know, setting fires is one of the killer triads. Did he wet the bed too? No, this was the only one of the triad that he had. Oh, okay. At 12, Paul got his first job working at a restaurant that was owned by one of his father's friends. At 15, Paul met his first love, a pretty blonde girl whom he lost his virginity to. And I left her name out because no one, I'm sure, wants to be associated with this dirtbag. No, not at all. She would later say that Paul was super controlling during their relationship. Apparently, she left him for one of his friends, and Paul retaliated by setting fire to a bunch of her things. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. He was not happy. He was vindictive. Oh, yeah. Well, and he's been taught that he should have control and take what he wants. Mm-hmm. So she had to pay. Paul was already having a rocky start to life, but at age 15, something happened that many believe was a turning point for Paul. During an argument with his mother, Marilyn spewed out to Paul, like Venom, that Kenneth wasn't his real father. Oh no. Marilyn, feeling trapped in her abusive marriage, had an affair with an old boyfriend, and this man was Paul's biological father. And she knew that for sure? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And I just thought, can you imagine finding this out at the age of 15 in a loving way by your mother, let alone in a vindictive way that was meant to hurt you in the spur of the moment yeah that's unkind and you could see how that would have lasting effects yeah because now he's been shooken finding out at 15 that your father is not your biological father and not just any dad but one that's so abusive was there any reports that Paul was physically abused as well or was it just the girls I didn't find anything saying that he was okay or that his brother Dave was I don't know, maybe they could be, but I did not find that information. Hmm. Needless to say, Paul's relationship with his mother deteriorated after this. No kidding. Uh He started referring to her as it and would call her a slut and a whore to her face. She retaliated by calling him derogatory names for a child without a father and told him he was a child from hell. Oh no. So you could see how this would shake his foundation because he's finding out that his dad isn't his biological father and now he has no relationship with his mother. Why is his mom being such a terror? I don't know. 
she's probably feeling like you're turning just into Kenneth, right? Oh. He's been caught peeping in women's windows and setting fires. And she's probably like, no, I'm done. I don't know, not to make excuses for her, but yeah, maybe it wasn't the kindest thing that she could have done. That's for sure. Yeah, totally. People were generally unaware of what was happening with Paul and in his home. He was a teen camp counselor at one point and was described as, quote, kind, gentle, and helpful to children. That's eerie. It is. If later I found out what he goes on to do and that he had been my kid's camp counselor, that wouldn't sit right with me. No. On the outside, he was a good-looking guy. He was clean-cut, looked like he came from a good home. He did good in school and had a way with the ladies. Girls were typically attracted to Paul. He seemed to be a bit charismatic. Isn't it disturbing to think that the skills that he learned as a camp counselor would later be used to lure in victims? Ooh, that is a creepy thought. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a manipulator and he's just good with people, which allows him to get away with his crimes for a long time. Mm -hmm. At age 17, Paul graduated from Sir Wilfrid Laurier High School and started to enjoy the nightlife at bars. He learned that he could convince women to sleep with him if he told them the right lie. Oh, we don't like liars. No. Liars are dirtbags. Yes. Melissa's last case was a class A liar. Uh-huh. And we did not like him. In 1983, at the age of 19, Paul enrolled in the accounting program at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. He started talking to his friends about wishing he could have a virgin farm where he would have a bunch of women wanting to have sex with him. Who were all virgins. Yes. In 1985, Paul's father was arrested for peeping into women's windows. Allegedly, he was arrested for molestation as well. But from what I could tell, nothing right away came of these charges. So he's peeping in on more people than just his daughter at this point. Yeah. And there's a molestation charge. Ooh, so he's taking it that one step farther. Yeah. Like you said, with the pornography, mm-hmm. pretty soon it's not enough to do it to his daughter. He has to branch out and do it to others. And then pretty soon it's not enough to watch. He has to touch. Exactly. Interesting. And this isn't Paul's biological dad. So you can kind of see that it is more nurture than nature in this case. Could be. And this arrest is happening at a pivotal time for Paul. He's only like 21 at this time. Mm hmm. Paul would date a lot of women, and some of them at the same time. Some of these women would claim to the police that Paul was controlling and rough with them. He enforced violent sex with his partners. An ex of his best friend even had to take out a restraining order on him due to him making repeat obscene phone calls to her. What? So it wasn't even his ex. He was just getting back at her for breaking up with his friend to the point that she had to take out a restraining order. That's taking it one step too far. Mm-hmm. The first obscene phone call is too far. <laughs> it's good to stick up for your friends, but that is too far. Yes. It doesn't even involve you. No. Yeah. I think he just wanted any opportunity he could to harass mm-hmm. a woman and be controlling. Mm-hmm. And remember his own ex-girlfriend, he set all her stuff on fire. So is this his first criminal charge then? I don't believe he was even charged. There was just a restraining order out on him. And some of the ex-girlfriends had also made claims, but nothing really happened from it. So no record as of yet. Right. In 1987, Paul was smuggling cigarettes across the Canadian-U.S. border on a regular basis to earn extra money, a thing he would continue to do even after graduating and working as a junior accountant at Pricewaterhouse in Toronto. Seems like such a random thing to do. Right? Smuggling cigarettes? 
I guess they're that much cheaper in the States. (laughs) Maybe. Was it hard to get cigarettes in the 80s? I don't know. (laughs) Also in 1987, at the age of 22, Paul would escalate his violence towards women. He committed his first rape on May 4th. He attacked a 21-year-old woman at a bus stop. Just randomly. Mm -hmm. Just could not control himself anymore. Right. Laying in wait to find a victim. And he waited and saw this 21-year-old woman getting off the bus, and he raped her. So he went and actually planned to take somebody from this bus stop. Or was he just there, saw the opportunity, and took it? It sounds like in all of them, he lays in wait. Like he has the thought or the urge, and I'm going to go on the hunt and find someone. Mm. And I'm going to pick the victim. Right. And then mere days later, he raped a 19-year-old woman in front of her own home. Two months after that, he attempted to rape a third woman also at a bus stop. That would have been terrifying to live in that area at that time and hear about all these rapes going on. Oh, yeah. And we're just getting started. By some horrendous glitch in the universe's system, on Saturday, October 17th, 1987, Paul met a young woman named Carla Hamolka. And I just feel like it's too bad that the Earth didn't just open up in that moment and swallow the two of them up at the same time. Yeah. What these two do together is so crazy. It really is. They happen to be at the same hotel at the same time, the Howard Johnson Hotel in Toronto. Carla worked at a veterinary clinic and was attending a veterinary conference at the hotel. The two were both with friends when they met at the hotel bar. It was said that Paul and Carla hit it off immediately. They talked all night and really connected. One thing led to another, and soon they went up to one of their rooms and did some connecting that didn't necessarily involve talking. (laughs) (laughs) And two dirtbags find each other. Yep. It's a sad day when that happens. Paul was 23 and Carla was 17. In Canada, Carla was considered over the age of consent, so it wasn't illegal for them to get together sexually. She had no idea when they met that night that she was going to bed with a rapist. When the convention ended, they exchanged numbers and began dating. Paul's friends had never seen him fall for a girl so quickly. The articles that I referred to about Paul's earlier life suggested that perhaps the reason Paul fell for Carla so quickly was due to her personality meeting his high-dominance personality. So was she super submissive then? No, she was also more of a high-dominance personality. Okay, that makes sense because I was like, how does that happen then later on? No, and I think it excited him because she Mm. wasn't submissive and she was into all the weird stuff that he was into sexually. Right. So he had met his match. Exactly. Mm. Carla Leanne Homolka was born on May 4th, 1970 in Mississauga, Ontario. Carla was born to Carol and Dorothy Homolka. Carol Homolka, Carla's father, was a Czechoslovakian immigrant and worked as a traveling salesman. I couldn't find very much information on her mother, Dorothy. She has understandably tried to stay out of the media. I don't know how you would ever handle your child turning into one of these dirtbags. Oh, no. And I actually say that (laughs) in my next paragraph here. Carla was their firstborn child. And I feel like it is always so baffling to me how a couple can bring a baby home from the hospital and then years later realize that their baby girl, whom they love so much, is a murderous scab to society. Yeah. Carla had two sisters. Tammy, who was five years younger than Carla, and another sister. The other sister legally changed her name three years after the crimes of her sister, so I decided to respect her wishes and not mention her name at all. Yeah, let's give her some privacy. Yeah. 
By all accounts, Carla had a decent childhood. She was perceived as beautiful, she was smart in school, and was very popular. Carla absolutely loved animals and started working at a veterinary clinic right after she graduated from high school. Paul was also considered a looker, and so the media later coined these dirtbags the Ken and Barbie killers. It was as if people couldn't believe that conventionally attractive people could be so unbelievably ugly and vile on the inside. Which is just so shocking to me because how many serial killers are actually, they are attractive. Like I'm thinking of other serial killers like Ted Bundy who is considered attractive as well. Mm -hmm. And they use that to their advantage to lure people in. And that's the thing with dirtbags. They usually don't look like trolls under a bridge. They look like your neighbor. They look like your uncle. They just look like regular people. Yeah, it's so true. Some of them might look like a troll, but a lot of them don't. (laughs) I always find it interesting that we find it so shocking that somebody attractive can be like that yeah and then when somebody not so attractive we're like oh yeah he looks like a dirtbag <laughs> yes I watched this video of there was a guy it was probably a tiktok he was going around showing people pictures and he's like who would you be most scared of to be in an alley with and they showed like Jeffrey Dahmer and then some guy who looked like he'd been through the ringer and they're all like oh I would be more scared with this guy and they would rather spend their evening with Jeffrey Dahmer yeah and almost all the times like they would pick these killers and of course I knew who these killers were in the pictures and I'm like no don't pick them (laughs) wrong one that was a mistake (laughs) just remember looks can be deceiving you listen to your gut Mm -hmm. the beginning of Paul and Carla's romance could be described as a whirlwind romance They immediately started dating, and Paul would travel a few hours one way to visit Carla a couple of times a week. They spent every moment they could together. It was clear to those around them that the pair were in love and obsessed with one another. And had it only stayed with one another. Yes, we wouldn't be talking about them. Nope. One day, Carla's friends found handcuffs in her bedroom, and Carla openly admitted to them about the kinky games the two of them liked to play in bed. Paul was excited to have someone who was open to his darker sexual desires. Even though Paul was six years older than their daughter, Dorothy and Carol approved of their eldest daughter dating him. They thought he was a catch. He was a charming, good-looking guy with a bright future ahead of him as an accountant. Two months after meeting and dating Carla, Paul raped a third victim, this (gasps) time a child. Did Carla find out about this? No. How did she take it? Carla didn't know about this. Oh, okay. He attacked a 15-year-old girl on December 16th after watching her get off a bus. Police had no idea who the crazed man was who was attacking young women and children, but the media gave him the name the Scarborough Rapist. Exactly a week later, he raped again. He stalked and attacked a 27-year-old woman. During the assault, he threatened her with a knife. He was so clearly escalating his deviant behavior because now he's bringing in a weapon. Yeah, and he's just out of control, like getting quicker and quicker and just so brazen about where he's attacking these women. Like it's not he's pulling them into dark alleys. He's attacking them at bus stops where other people could be. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's just so brazen with it. And this is why I think he has way more victims than what are recorded. Mm -hmm. Because during these times where nothing is happening, I think things were still happening. I don't believe that he just would cool off for a few months and then attack again and attack again a few days in between one another. In March the following year, 1988, the Metro Police created the Scarborough Rapist Task Force to try and capture the pervert attacking women in the Scarborough area. Paul continued to rape his fifth and sixth victims in the following months. A 19-year-old getting off the bus 
and an 18-year-old 10 miles outside of Scarborough. So much for the task force. Mm-hmm. And you would think they would be stationed at, at bus as stops. Many, yeah, as many bus stops as they could. But I guess there's probably a lot of bus stops. <laughs> there's a lot of bus stops in yeah. Scarborough. On October 4th, Paul tried to rape another victim. This woman was thankfully able to fight him off and get away, but not before sustaining stab wounds on her thigh and buttocks. She required 12 stitches. Oh, and this time he actually injured her. Mm -hmm. He's not just threatening anymore. No, he cut her while they were fighting. In November, Paul starts cheating on Carla with a woman who lives in Toronto and succeeds in raping his seventh victim, an 18-year-old in her parents' own backyard. He is clearly on a sex-crazed, violent rampage at this point. Do you imagine in your own backyard? No. You think you're safe in your own home. You should be safe in your own home. Oh. And he's dating Carla, who's willing to do all these deviant sexual things with him, and he's cheating on her with another girl, and it's still not enough. So what is that called? He could be a sex addict, but I think a lot of it for him is control. Mm. Paul decides to take a break for Christmas, but then two days after the festive day, he strikes again. This woman gets away by screaming for her neighbors to help her. In 1989 and 1990, Paul continued to attempt and rape more women. By May of 1990, he raped a 22, a 15, and a 19-year-old, bringing his tally of official rape victims to 11, not counting his attempts. And those are only the ones that we know about. Right. Which, like I said, I believe there's way more. Because some of his victims managed to escape his evil claws, police were able to come up with a fairly decent composite sketch of the dirtbag known as the Scarborough Rapist. Unbelievably, Paul's friend was the one to see his picture plastered all over the news and decided to call the police. The one that he had called his ex-girlfriend for? I'm assuming so. There's only one friend that his name keeps coming up in almost everything, but I'm not 100% sure if it's that friend. And I didn't want to include his okay. name because, again, I feel like what a hero. The bro code ended with rape, okay. right? Like, you're a rapist. I'm breaking the bro code and turning you in. Right. On November 20th, 1990, police brought Paul in for questioning. They spent 35 minutes interviewing him, and Paul freely gave them hair, saliva, and blood samples. For testing. What? My guess is that his confidence of not getting caught grew so large that he didn't even feel threatened to give police his DNA samples. And this should be the end of the story, right? Yes. They have all that connection to him. Yeah. Police have his DNA, right? He should be arrested, found guilty, and thrown in the slammer, right? Yeah. For 11 rapes. Yeah. Well, not exactly. His DNA kit would be set on the growing pile of DNA kits to be processed for two years. No way. There were allegedly 130 samples submitted just for the Scarborough rapist alone, not to mention all the other samples for other cases that were backlogged. They didn't have the same technology that we have today either, and perhaps because Paul gave his DNA so freely, police may have considered him low on the suspect list. Well, I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. But it sat there for two years. But what's he thinking? Like, eventually they're going to run the test and make connections. He obviously wasn't too worried about it because they said he gave it freely. He's way overconfident. Mm -hmm. But it probably did help him because they're not worried about him. Mm -hmm. They didn't put a rush on his kit. All they have to go off of right now is his buddy says, yeah, he kind of looks like this guy. The mm. sketch. That's it. During his time as a rapist, Paul continued his relationship with Carla. On December 9th in 1989, just two years after meeting, 
Paul and Carla took a trip to Niagara Falls together. It was there that Paul proposed, and Carla said yes. Why would she ever say yes? This just boggles my mind. Here's this rapist. Well, I guess she doesn't know he's a rapist, but has she figured out that he's stepping out on her? Well, allegedly, she was yet to be aware of his deviant behaviors. However, this ignorance is bliss state would not last long. So at this point, I don't really think she knew what he was doing. Oh. Logically, you would think that after being interviewed by police, one might be a little spooked and lie low for a little bit. Paul was too much of a dirtbag to do this. Paul had moved in with the Homolkas and became obsessed with Carla's youngest sister, Tammy. Tammy was only 15 at the time. It's so sad. It's going to get rough, you guys. Paul wanted to be able to peek in on Tammy without her knowing to watch her undress. Allegedly, Carla helped Paul do this by parting her little sister's window coverings so he could get a better view from outside. It was also reported that Paul would sneak into Tammy's bedroom at night and masturbate while he watched her sleep. And so this is after they're married? No, they're just engaged right now. And she stays engaged to him? Yes, and helps him. Yeah, I don't understand why she's helping him. Mm Mm-hmm. She's not committed to him yet. No. Run. (laughs) And that's the thing. And that's what a lot of people, when she later, and we'll talk about it, but when she later claims that he had a hold over her and that kind of stuff, we're not so sure. I think she, I believe she was a willing participant. And he just somehow was able to talk her into it. I just don't know how you do that to your own little sister. Mm -mm. Yeah, to anyone, let alone your little sister. Mm -hmm. Who you're supposed to protect. But it just gets worse. As Christmas approached, Paul told his fiancée that he wanted something she couldn't give him as a present. When she asked what that was, he answered, saying it was her virginity. He was upset that Carla wasn't a virgin when they met. Remember his virgin farm fantasy? Mm -hmm. He told Carla that the next best thing would be to gift him her sister's virginity. Oh, because that's hers to give. And Carla agreed. What? It's so ridiculous that I have to laugh. Like, it's not a laughable matter, but that is just ridiculous. It is. Seriously, what the actual heck? This blows my mind. I have always been so protective of my younger sister and cannot even fathom this behavior. I just can't. Like, can you imagine our husbands coming and asking us to give someone else's virginity to them and help them? Yeah, no. No, that's not the gift you're getting, honey. (laughs) (laughs) He must have been so manipulative to... Talk her into that. Yeah. She's like, okay. He probably made her feel guilty about not being a virgin when they Mm -hmm. met. And I wanted your virginity so bad. And I guess Tammy's will do. It's ridiculous. It really is. It just blows my mind. Like you said, they're not married. Like she has no legal connection to him. And even if she did, that's still not a reason to. Mm -hmm. But she has some outs still. Two days before Christmas, on December 23rd, 1990... Carla decided to let Paul have what he wanted for Christmas, her little sister. Carla didn't want Tammy to be conscious during the attack, so she brought home Helothane and Halcyon from the animal clinic that she worked at to use on her sister. And I probably said them wrong. I haven't heard of those drugs before, but I'm not a veterinarian, so... They're not for human consumption. The pair waited for the Homolka parents to go to bed and then invited Tammy to stay up and have some drinks with them. And she was probably so excited about that. Being 15, she would have been so excited that her older sister invited her to party with them. Yeah, that's literally what I have written next, that she would have been so excited for that, to stay up late and drink. 
with her soon-to-be brother-in-law and her sister. And from what I could tell, Tammy and Paul had a good relationship up to this point. She obviously didn't know that he was spying on her and sneaking into her room. I'm surprised she wasn't getting creepy vibes from him, though. It's hard to believe that somebody who does that many disgusting things isn't sending off a total creep vibe. No, but he's the opposite. He's a manipulator and he's charismatic and he draws women in. Mm -hmm. I read two different accounts of how they drug Tammy to make her drowsy. They either crushed up the halcyon and put it in her spaghetti or spiked her rum and eggnog drink with it. Carla then applied a rag that was drenched in halothane over her sister's nose and mouth to ensure she would stay unconscious during the attack. Paul got his Christmas wish and he raped 15-year-old Tammy Homolka while Carla watched. When he was finished, he invited his bride-to-be to join in on the fun and assault her sister as well. Carla decided to get in on the action and sexually assaulted Tammy. No, she did. Tammy's parents were fast asleep upstairs as this was happening. And to make things even worse, these two little dirtbags decided that they should videotape the entire attack so that they could rewatch it later and get more sexual enjoyment from it. Oh, probably while they were having sex. Yeah, a trophy, essentially. And you're probably right. They probably used it for that. Carla apparently even put on her sister's clothing and pretended to be her in the video. What? Mm-hmm. Was that to get the attention back on her? I think it was to excite Paul. Oh. After being violated, Tammy began making a gurgling noise. She started to foam at the mouth and vomit. Tammy started to choke on her own vomit and stopped breathing. Carla and Paul quickly tried to clean up and hide any evidence before calling 911 for help. They redressed the poor girl and moved her to a bed in a different room. Some reports claim that they tried to resuscitate her until paramedics arrived. Tammy was pronounced dead upon arriving at St. Catherine's General Hospital. My guess is that she had died before they even called 911. Mm. Paul and Carla told the police and hospital staff that the three of them had been up drinking together and eventually they fell asleep. They said they woke up to hearing Tammy choking on her vomit and tried all they could do to save her. Somehow everyone, including Carla's parents, believed this hogwash. There are multiple reasons why this shit had never flown with the authorities and especially with the hospital staff. First, Tammy had extremely large chemical burns on her face from the halothane-soaked rag that Carla held to her face. How did they explain those away? The burn was over a large area and were a dark blood-red color. The drugs that Carla stole were animal strength and not meant to be used on humans. To explain away the burns, Carla told everyone that when they tried to help Tammy, she sustained rug burn to her face from them dragging her on the carpet. And I have to question, <laughs> wouldn't a rug burn and a chemical burn look largely different in nature? Oh, absolutely. They would look so different. And how could you ignore the fact that it was just over her mouth and nose? Yeah. And it was kind of on the side of her cheek, like she was laying on her side, it looked like. And so it was her whole cheek area and then up around her mouth. But not on her forehead or anything like that. No. Not on the tip of her nose where, yeah. No. And the burn didn't disperse on the edges like a rug burn would. You know how a rug burn will look kind of scratchy? Mm -hmm. It was so infuriating. If you looked at the photos of the burn, it's so clearly not made by carpet. Hmm. And how did the hospital staff not realize that? Well, you wouldn't be expecting it for one thing. It clearly looks like a chemical burn. And I'm not an expert. But you're looking at it with the knowledge that this person was murdered. Okay, wait. I'm going to show you the picture. 
You're a nurse. Let's see what you think. (laughs) I'm trying to think. In the moment, it would have been super dramatic. You know, they're bringing this 15-year-old in. I bet you her sister and Paul are behind them crying. The family's crying. Do you just accept the story as is? Okay, does that look like a rug burn to you? No, totally does not look like a rug burn. (laughs) Definitely not a rug burn. Not even a little bit like a rug burn. No. That's so large. Like, it looks like every part is completely burned that it touched. Mm -hmm. Like I said, there's no dispersing on the edges. Yeah. That's not a rug burn. And how do you get it up by your high cheekbone and then down on the other side of your lip? Yeah. Very strange. I don't know how they missed it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first thing, the burn. Second, if an autopsy had been performed, police would have known that Tammy had been drugged. Third, if her body had been inspected at all, they should have found evidence that would have suggested the young girl was sexually assaulted. And so Tammy Homolka's death was ruled an accident. They just bought Paul and Carla's story that they were drinking. Yep. Accidental, my butt. Mm -hmm. Not so. Which is so sad because everything after that could have been prevented. These two dirtbags could have already been in jail. Exactly. There has been debate over how involved Carla was in the crimes that her and Paul committed together. But this next thing I'm about to tell you seals the deal for me and leaves no room for doubt how sadistic Carla was during this and future attacks. During her sister's funeral, whom she helped rape and essentially kill, Carla placed a photograph inside Tammy's casket before she was buried. This seems harmless, but when you see the picture that was later retrieved, it was a picture of Carla and Paul leaning into one another with the biggest smiles on their faces. And in the picture, Paul is holding his hand up like he's waving hello. Why would she do that? This to me feels like the biggest insult to injury. Literally, like a taunt, making sure that her sister is buried with a picture of the two of them saying hello forever. Well, it's like claiming her. Yeah. And if she was really grieving for her sister, why wouldn't she have put in a picture of herself and Tammy in the coffin instead of a picture of the two people who murdered her looking all cheerful and carefree? Yeah, that's so wrong. Maybe you need to see it to understand, but it honestly couldn't be a more sinister picture under the circumstances. And so I gave kind of a spoiler alert here too. Tammy's body is later exhumed. And that's how they find the picture. Yeah, and that's how they find the photo. And at that time, Dorothy and Carol instructed police not to put the picture back in the coffin when she's reburied. Which seems right. Yeah, absolutely. There are also reports that state that Paul was seen caressing Tammy's long blonde hair while she laid in the open casket. So he walked up to her and was rubbing her hair. Soon after Tammy is laid to rest, Paul and Carla decided to move out of the family home and get their own place. They wanted to give the Homolka parents space and time to grieve. They moved to Port Dalhousie and rented a cute little bungalow. They happily continued life and wedding planning like nothing had ever happened. They didn't feel any remorse. Mm -mm. Like anything in Carla's actions that show that she was the least bit sad over her sister's death. She probably cried at the funeral and that kind of stuff. But when you're actually putting in that picture at the open casket at the viewing, to me, that does not speak to remorse. Well, it doesn't even seem like they're even trying to keep up appearances of being saddened. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I assume that they are. But even people who saw him like stroking her hair. Oh, he cared about her so much. Not that he was a creepy pedophile. No, nobody suspected that he had basically ended her life Mm. with Carla. Considering the first time they tried to rape someone together and that person happened to die and that person was one of their sisters, you might think that they would call it quits. 
This is not what happened. Paul and Carla would continue to select and assault and even murder more girls together. I honestly do not remember hearing about all the other victims of Paul and Carla's, mostly just the murder victims. So I wanted to make sure I at least mentioned that they happened, even if all the names are not available to the public. And there could actually be more that we don't even know about. Considering the time gap between some of the crimes, like I said, it wasn't like Paul to take breaks. Escalation seemed to be his pattern. So how many do we know of? Well, I'm going to go through some of them here. Three murders that we know of. Yeah. But then lots of other attacks. Yeah, I don't think I knew about any of the other attacks before. Yeah. That's why we dig deep on buried motives. It is. Because I feel like those victims need a voice too. Mm Mm-hmm. In January 1991, Paul abducted a girl and took her to Carla's parents' home while they were out of town, raped her while Carla watched, and then abandoned her on a deserted road near Lake Gibson. Carla and Paul referred to her as January Girl. What? Which to me speaks to the fact that there would be many if she's just January Girl. Yeah. On April 6, 1991, Paul rapes his 12th victim on his own, this time a 14-year-old girl. They keep getting younger and younger. On June 7, 1991, Carla invited a girl that she had become friends with to join her on a girls' night out. This girl was only 15 years old. Carla and her met at a pet shop. During the trial, this girl is referred to as Jane Doe to protect her identity. When the girls' night out was winding down, Carla invited her to come back to her house with her to continue drinking there. The girl accepted the invitation. Once inside Carla and Paul's home, they drugged her with Halcyon, and both Carla and Paul sexually assaulted her. They took turns recording this incident on videotape to enjoy later. When she came to, Jane Doe didn't seem to remember what had happened, so they let her leave. But she later recalled, right? Or do they identify her just because of the videotape? They find her videotape. And she starts to have small bits of recollection right before that. But she never is fully aware or remembers everything that happened. The trauma that that would cause? Yeah. She later finds out exactly what happened by watching the tapes. A few days later, Paul set his sights on their next murder victim. Paul was wanting to find a girl that they could kidnap and keep as a sex slave in their home. He said he wanted to enjoy them for more than just one night. But they wouldn't be a virgin after the first night, Christy. Yeah, but it would be his sex slave and he would get her virginity. But it sounds like Carla's already fulfilling that role of being a sex slave. Yeah. But like I said, his pattern is to escalate and that would get boring. He needs more. Mm. And that's probably why he picks such young girls. On the evening of June 15th, 1991, Paul spotted 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey outside of her home alone. Leslie had been at a funeral for a friend and then afterwards she went out to party with some of her friends. She had missed her curfew and the house doors were locked. She decided to walk to a nearby convenience store to call a friend and ask if she could sleep over. Again, not cell phone age. You had to walk to a store to call. Mm -hmm. The friend said no, and so Leslie walked back to her house. This is when Paul happened upon her. He offered her a cigarette from his car, and when she got close enough to his car, he came up behind Leslie, placed a makeshift blind over her eyes, and forced her into his car. How terrifying. Yeah, right outside her house. If she could have just called her parents. I know. It's It's such an unfortunate thing. It's always okay to call your parents. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't matter, even if you're going to get in trouble. When he got home with his kidnapped prize, he woke up Carla, who was sleeping. Carla claims that she just went back to sleep and let Paul have his way with Leslie. 
Paul spent the night raping and torturing Leslie in the spare bedroom while his girlfriend slept in the other room. And she just slept. <laughs> yeah, she just slept. Which also tells me that she's not bothered by this. No. If you can just roll over and go back to sleep, it's probably a very common occurrence. And she was like, meh, next time. It's not even bothering her, like striking a jealous chord or anything. No. In fact, when Carla got up the next morning, you won't believe what she was upset about. Instead of being upset that her husband spent the night sexually violating a 14-year-old child, she got upset about glasses. What? When Carla went to take their dog outside, she noticed that Paul had used their special champagne flutes to drink with Leslie the night before. Carla later said during an interview with police about this incident, quote, I was really mad too, because when I took Buddy out, there were two champagne glasses on the dining room table. And we had these really expensive champagne glasses from France, which we never use. He had those out. The two of them had been drinking champagne from those glasses. And I was really mad. It's the stupid little things. <laughs> you did an excellent job reading in your Barbie voice. <laughs> I tried. Her voice will drive you crazy because she totally puts on an act in front of the police, which I'll mm -hmm. talk about. I suppose Carla got over her anger because she ended up once again joining her sadistic fiancé in assaulting a child. She too participated in the repeated rape and torture of Leslie. In the videos later found of this attack, you can hear music from Bob Marley and David Bowie playing in the background. So they're just having a party. You can also hear Paul say to Leslie that she's doing a good job and basically telling her how she behaves will determine what he does to her. And so far, she's scoring perfect. During another part of the video, Leslie cries out in pain and begs Paul to stop. Her hands were bound with twine and he was sodomizing her. Ugh. She wasn't drugged during this. She had had some drugs. She was forced to drink a lot of alcohol, but they had kept her for a long time. Mm -hmm. So they didn't keep her drugged and intoxicated the whole time. Mm. In between torturing Leslie, they gave her a teddy bear to hold. Which is so disturbing dirtbag pedophiles absolutely and the things that i mentioned are just really the tip of the iceberg like they really sexually torture these girls leslie had been held captive for over 24 hours with these two dirtbags because her blindfold had been removed paul told carla that they'd have to kill her she could identify them i personally think he had every intention of murdering her before he even kidnapped her and a little side note paul would later say it was carla's idea to kill leslie not his so neither of them take responsibility ever, which just makes this that much more maddening. Paul grabbed an electrical cord and choked Leslie to death as Carla watched. She later said, quote, he went over to her and did the same thing. He strangled her more. And I think I watched that time because what the hell? She's dead anyway. No, <laughs> it matters. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You don't just think you watched your boyfriend strangle a girl to death with a cord. You know for an absolute if you just watched that or not. Like, oh yeah, I think I saw him do that. And she was saying, like, in the context with that was that he had strangled her and then he went back and strangled her again to make sure. And that's when she's like, oh yeah, I watched the second time because she was already dead, so it didn't really matter. No, you didn't. You watched both times. You watched that girl die. Oh, and what does it matter? You were there the whole time and you could have done something about it and you didn't. Right. So whether you actually physically watched or not, it doesn't matter. Totally. You were completely aware of it. Yep. And again, according to Paul, he said it was Carla who killed her with an overdose of Halcyon. And he just choked her afterwards. Yeah. Paul and Carla put Leslie's body in their basement to give themselves time to hatch a plan and figure out what to do with her lifeless body. 
There are rumors that they had Carla's family over for dinner that night with Leslie's body laying in the basement. Ooh, that's a disturbing thought. Mm-hmm. And one account that I read said that Carla had to stop her mom from going in the basement. Her mom was going to go in the basement and she had to prevent her from doing so. The next day, the two of them decided that it would be best to get rid of her in pieces. They used Paul's grandfather's circular saw to dismember her and then encased those body parts into individual cement blocks. Paul bought 12 bags of cement from a local hardware store and still had the receipt when finally arrested, which was used as evidence against him. Once the cement was set, they took the blocks and dumped them into nearby Lake Gibson. Two weeks after first kidnapping Leslie, Paul and Carla were married on June 29, 1991. Carla wore a big poofy dress fit for a 90s princess, and Paul looked like her Prince Charming. Their wedding was so much like a fairy tale that they even rode through their town in a horse-drawn carriage. It just seems so wrong. And it was like two weeks to the day after they had abducted her. The killer couple, now joined in wedlock, appeared like a young couple in love with the whole world ahead of them. Many family members and friends joined them in celebrating their union. And it turns my stomach to think of everyone clapping and gushing over these two newlyweds who had just murdered their second victim earlier that same month. It's just hard to fathom. It really is. Because you think of young kids getting married and you're excited for them and you're happy for them and you want the best for them starting this new life together. Mm -hmm. Having no idea the things that they've done or are about to do. This next part really blew my mind too. On the same day as their wedding, while they are enjoying their elaborate wedding festivities, Leslie's remains were found by people on Lake Gibson. Her dental appliance helped authorities identify who she was. Part of me feels like this coincidence is too much. Was this Leslie's way of speaking from her watery grave? Did any of the guests find out about the discovery of a young girl's body parts during their wedding? Did guests talk amongst themselves about how horrible it was what happened to this girl without realizing that they were, in that very moment, at the killer's wedding, breaking bread and taking pictures? Christy, those are disturbing thoughts. I couldn't get it out of my brain. I could not imagine. No, the same day. And I even thought, did Paul and Carla find out and did it make them excited or nervous? I bet you they were excited. Yeah, this is so much for my brain to unpack with this happening. I want to believe it was her speaking from her watery grave. Yeah. I'm going to show up on your wedding day. Hopefully it haunted them. I hope so. Carla was probably annoyed. Oh, she's taking the spotlight off my day. (laughs) Sorry. We all know how I feel about her and him. Either way, if Paul and Carla knew or not about Leslie's remains being found, it didn't stop them from living it up on their honeymoon. Carla later said that during their honeymoon, this is when Paul admitted to her that he was the Scarborough rapist. And she didn't appreciate him ruining her special date with that information. Oh, poor Carla. (laughs) Yeah. You already know he's a murderer. You've seen him cut up a girl's body with his grandpa's saw. And now you're upset that he's the Scarborough rapist because he told you during your honeymoon? Well, you only get one honeymoon, Christy. I guess. It just sits so poorly with me because there's so much video with them too. Like there's video of them on their honeymoon and... I can't remember where they went. It was somewhere tropical, but he puts like a lay around him and he's like, oh, my first lay of the honeymoon. I just got laid and he's making all these kind of sex jokes and you just want to punch him in the face. Not long after returning from their honeymoon, the newlyweds invited Jane Doe back to their home on August 10th and did the exact same thing to her that they had the first time. 
They did it another time. They did it a second time. They're like, well, that was good. Let's bring her back. And she didn't remember the first time. So so she went. This time, the girl vomited and started choking mid-rape. Carla did call 911 and the girl survived, but didn't really know what had happened. Before the ambulance arrived, Jane Doe started breathing again. So Carla called 911 back and canceled the ambulance, meaning no one came who could have possibly suspected foul play. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. And that would have linked that to her sister. Had they had two calls where the two of them were partying, both girls choked on their vomit, like that would send off red flags for sure. You would hope so. I mean, oh. thankfully, Jane Doe started breathing but yeah. and was able to go. But it's unfortunate that they didn't show up anyways just to check and make sure. And she doesn't remember anything from the second time either. No. On March 29th, 1992, Paul stalked and followed two sisters in his car. The sisters drove to their parents' house and quickly got out to write down the creep who was videotaping and following them's license plate number. Unfortunately, they wrote the license plate number wrong and Paul wasn't connected to the incident. Apparently, though, one of the sisters later ran into Paul while out running errands. She tried to follow him home, but he lost her. She was able to correctly write down his license plate number this time, but the information was lost at the police department and nothing ever came of it. There are so many times that they could have caught these people. Yeah, and I do talk about this a little bit later, but there is a full-blown investigation how the police handled this case. Because so many times it could have been stopped. On April 16th, 1992, Carla and Paul go out on the hunt together to find another victim. They purposely waited until after school to find a teenage girl walking home from school. They spotted a 15-year-old girl named Kristen French walking alone. They pull into a church parking lot and wait for Kristen to approach. When she does, Carla asks her if she can help her with directions. Kristen stops to help the young couple. And we know from other couple killers that victims often feel a false sense of safety when a woman is involved in the ruse to capture them. Carla gets out of the car and places a map on the hood of the car for Kristen to help her. So she's going to be leaned over looking away from where Paul is going to come from. Exactly. While Kristen is showing Carla where to go on the map, Paul gets out of the car and forces Kristen into the car by holding a knife to her. They make her sit in the front seat so Carla could control her from the back seat. I believe she was like grabbing her by her hair and that kind of stuff so she couldn't move. There is a bit of a commotion and later onlookers said they noticed something happening but thought it was just kids fooling around. So people could kind of hear stuff going on but Paul and Carla are young Kristen looks young and they just thought it was kids goofing off. How important is it for us to teach our kids like what to scream? Yeah, you scream fire. Yeah. Again, Paul wanted a sex slave. So they took Kristen back to their home to hold her hostage and violate her in every way possible. Kristen is held at their home for three entire days. Just like with the others, they repeatedly rape and torture her. When Paul is away, Carla tries to be nice to Kristen by making small talk and giving her a stuffed animal to cuddle. She later claimed that they were becoming friends. What is with all these stuffed animals? They know that they're torturing young girls like they're teenagers, young teenagers. So Carla has at least some knowledge or recognition that these are children. Yeah, and that they're upset and she's trying to become friends with her when Paul's running errands and things like that. And, well, give her a teddy bear to comfort her. But as soon as Paul gets home, I'm going to help rape and sodomize her. It blows my mind. Paul and Carla take turns recording themselves raping Kristen. 
And this time, they force Kristen to watch videotapes of them raping their other victims. No way. I cannot fathom the terror these poor girls were put through. So that's, oh, here's a preview of what's to come. Yeah. Or don't feel bad. Like, look it. We did it to other people, too. I think it was more to torture her. Paul made Kristen drink large amounts of alcohol so he could control her more easily. In the video of Kristen's horrific attacks, at one point, Kristen tells Paul that, quote, some things are worth dying for. I don't know how your wife can stand to be around you. Oh, true story. Yeah. So she actually got to this point in the videos where she had had enough. And she's like, if you want to kill me, basically kill me. But what more could they actually do to her? Right. And little did she know that his wife is just as big of a dirtbag as he is. Yeah. And she was helping to rape her. But I don't know what kind of sob story she was telling Kristen when they were alone. After three days on April 19th, when they'd had enough of Kristen, Paul strangles her to death with an electrical cord the same way he had killed Leslie. Paul said that Carla had hit Kristen with a rubber mallet and then went to fix her own hair after Kristen was dead to make sure she looked okay. That night, they left Kristen's body inside their home while they went to Carla's parents' house for Easter dinner. When they got home, Paul discarded Kristen in a ditch in Burlington. Kristen had been reported missing almost immediately after not returning home from school that day. The Niagara Regional Police Service assembled a team and started scoping out her route home from school that she took every day. Police were able to find some of those onlookers to get statements of what they had witnessed, and police found one of Kristen's shoes in the parking lot, supporting their suspicions of foul play. I'm never going to see a single shoe in a parking lot and look at it the same way anymore. I always think that is the most creepiest thing ever. You know when you're driving along or you're walking and you see a single shoe? Oh, it's always so disturbing to me. I know. It baffles me, especially when I see one on the highway. Mm -hmm. You could see like a side road or something, but on a highway, how do you get a single shoe there? I don't know. Yeah, it's going to make me a little suspicious every time from now on. I have always been suspicious. I'm more like, how do you lose a shoe on the highway? (laughs) No, because that's my exact thought process is how do you lose a shoe on the highway, a single shoe? And so my mind jumps automatically to there must be a story with that. There's got to be something gruesome going on. Nobody leaves a single shoe behind. No, but how does it even get out of your car on the highway? I don't know. And it happens way more than you'd think. (laughs) I've seen a lot of single shoes on the side of the road. On April 30th, Kristen's naked body was discovered. Her body was washed to try and eliminate evidence, and her hair was cut off. Carla later said they cut her hair to try and make it harder for her to be identified, not because they wanted a trophy. Yeah. And I don't really think she did want a trophy. I think their videotapes were the trophies. It's not like they found a bunch of the girls' personal items that I could tell. But I can see Carla doing that because to her, like if you look at any of her pictures or she's like she's all about her hair and how good it looks. And mm-hmm. so I can see how cutting off the victim's hair would be a power move for her, oh, especially good point. after watching her husband rape and enjoy these girls. I think it would be for her. I've got the upper hand. Like, I took your hair away, and now he won't find you attractive anymore. Oh, that's really good insight. I never thought of that. But yeah, that would make sense. Because she is all about the hair. Yeah. Before Kristen was found, her classmates at Holy Cross Secondary School created the Green Ribbon of Hope campaign to try and help find her. This campaign has continued with Child Find Canada to raise awareness and funds to locate missing children. And they even associate with the government sometimes and different things for helping to find kids. 
With eyewitnesses of Kristen's abduction, police were able to release more information regarding who they were looking for. Unfortunately, some reported seeing two males instead of a male and female abductor, and they reported an incorrect make and model of the car. Oh, no. This ended up impeding, not helping the investigation. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, Paul's childhood friend, who he used to start fires with, starts putting two and two together and contacts the police on May 1st about his suspicions regarding his friend. And this time they listen to him. Police do come and interview Paul on May 12th and again take his DNA samples, but they don't consider him high on their suspect list. And like I said, there was an investigation later into the police work and how this case was handled. On May 23rd, another body is found, but there was no evidence ever to link this murder to Paul and Carla, although many believe they murdered this girl along with many more. In December, Jane Doe confronts Carla and Paul about what they did to her. So she's starting to get some memories back. She's having flashbacks, probably. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if this started to put pressure on Paul, but five days after this confrontation, on December 27th, Carla shows up to the hospital with the most brutal black eyes and face bruising. Paul had repeatedly hit her in the face with a flashlight. Carla would later claim that Paul had been abusive the entire relationship and used this as a defense, claiming that she was too scared to go against what Paul wanted. And we'll get into that a little bit more shortly. This is when things start to go to H-E double hockey sticks for Paul and Carla. Carla's parents find her beaten again at the beginning of January 1993. They remove her from her home with Paul and take her to stay with them. I believe they found her on January 5th and Paul was arrested on January 6th for assault against his wife. Two crazy things follow this ordeal. One, it is believed that Carla went back into the house to grab the collection of home videos she and her evil husband had made so the police wouldn't find them. And second, police release Paul on recognizance. And if you aren't sure what released on recognizance means, or an ROR, it's when someone who has been arrested makes a written promise that they sign agreeing to show up for future appearances in court in exchange for freedom while they await trial. They also agree to refrain from engaging in any further criminal behavior during their court-issued ROR. Nearly a month later, on February 1st, 1993, Paul's DNA results are finally completed from years earlier that were taken in connection to the Scarborough rapist case. Paul was, of course, a match. It took them that long. Yes, over two years. Ugh. And a little side note with that, the rapes had miraculously stopped in Scarborough when Paul moved in with Carla. The sad part of this is that if these results had come forward earlier, his later crimes possibly could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Paul's disgusting father was convicted one week later for sex-related charges in Scarborough. <laughs> he is later given nine months in jail and three months probation for sexually assaulting a woman. And this is why I said Paul getting caught years earlier only possibly could have prevented his future crimes. We've talked about it before on our podcast, but sexually related crimes are not given nearly the appropriate punishments in North America. And they're the hardest to reform from. You see your greatest number of reoffenders in sex crimes. Yeah, most of them don't even do any time. The next day, Carla is brought into the Metro Toronto Police Department for questioning about her and Paul's involvement in the recent assaults and murders. On February 17th, Paul is arrested for the rapes and murders and the next day, he is taken to Scarborough to be charged on multiple accounts regarding his sexual rampages there. On February 23rd, police find the videotape of Jane Doe. 
She later sees the tapes and has no recollection of what exactly happened to her. At first, police thought the tape was of Kristen. Mm. Three days later, Carla is arrested. What happens next is referred to in Canada as the deal with the devil. Carla is offered a reduced sentence for her part in the crimes in exchange for her testimony against her husband. At this point, police believe she is a battered wife and was only going along with the crimes out of self-preservation. And this is why I think deals should be able to be reneged on if the correct information or all the information wasn't shared. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes, because they find out stuff after the fact. The day after this, Carla requests an official divorce from her husband and the details of her plea bargain get underway. Carla basically had two options. She could be charged with two counts of first degree murder and take her chances or testify against Paul and serve 12 years for two counts of manslaughter. She decided to take the deal. 12 years. That is so sad. Yeah, and this is why Canadians are still outraged over this case. On May 17, 1993, Carla takes police to their home to show them the main areas where they assaulted Leslie and Kristen. They are able to collect DNA evidence to prove that both girls were inside the house. So the places where she was saying we were assaulting them, they did find DNA there. This is also when police find the leftover cement and receipt. But she hasn't said anything about her sister yet. No. You can watch video of Carla walking the police through their home and of her testimony. What you see on these tapes, to me, supports the idea that Carla is as guilty as can be. She dresses up like an innocent little schoolgirl and talks all high-pitched. And this is not how she normally dressed or spoke. So she's putting on an act. Oh, yeah. She's like, excuse me, officers. Like she's talking just all little girlish and oh. all sweet. Because at this point, they're thinking she's a battered woman. Yeah. So she's trying to sell that story. Yeah. I'm so shy and timid and mm -hmm. quiet. Meanwhile, the reason why Paul was attracted to her was because she was none of those things. Exactly. Her complete disregard for the monstrosity of their actions is so apparent when, as they're walking through the areas of their home where they torture and kill these two people, Carla begins asking the police about her material items. She questions them about where they took her furniture and where all her perfume samples went. She was like, oh, they were like really expensive perfume samples and I would like to know where they are. Am I going to get those back? And she's all worried about her perfume because they're expensive. Meanwhile, she's walking them through a house and showing them evidence of murder. Yes, and torture and rape. Ugh. And at one point, she even stops and points at a book on the floor and asks if she can take the book with her because her sister wanted to read it. She's just like, oh, excuse me, officer, is it okay if I take this book on the floor because my sister really wanted to read it? Or do I have to leave it? And he's like, no, you have to leave it. And she's like, okay. Uh, there's no record of her having any learning disabilities or mental deficits, right? No, none at all. So this is all completely an act. It's totally an act. And it's just showing her selfishness. She's yeah. not worried about what they're there for. She already knows she's getting a deal. She's like worried about her thing. She wants her perfume back. Oh, my goodness. And I think it's really funny, not really, but haha, -ha, how she cares about how her still living sister wants to read a specific book, but she didn't care if her littlest sister wanted to be raped and murdered or not. I'm guessing not, Carla. Yeah. And she doesn't even have enough respect to be like, uh, and this is what happened to my little sister. Mm -hmm. She does eventually. Yeah, but she's spilling all the beans now when it's to her favor, but not all of the beans. Right. And yeah. you're worried about a book? This is not what you should be worried about right now. 
The day after the home walkthrough, Paul is charged with multiple accounts regarding the kidnapping, torture, and murders of Kristen and Leslie. In the meantime, Carla is let out on bail provided by her parents. Oh, that is just so awful. Mm -hmm. They put their home up as collateral. Because they don't know what she's done to their other daughter. Exactly. They think she's this victim. Because they remember they found her beat up. So they do know that Paul has been beating her. Was that part of the act, though? I've always wondered that. Oh. I don't know. Because the first time she went in with those two really blackened eyes, she lied about how she got them. Like, she didn't say he had hit her. Yeah, okay. I don't remember exactly what it was, but like, oh, I fell or whatever it was. Carla's plea deal gets honored, and on July 6, 1993, she is sentenced to 12 years in prison and is sent to Kingston Prison for Women. After her plea deal is finished, she makes arrangements to ensure she will not get any additional charges for the things she will testify of against her now ex-husband. And so this tells me she is so calculated. Mm -hmm. She held things back until she knew she was not going to get any more jail time. That's right. And that's why I point out, at any time, she could have told them about her sister if she was actually coming clean. But she wasn't coming clean at all. No. And this tells me, too, that she obviously does not have any mental deficits either. Mm. She's fully aware of what she's doing. Miraculously, the police are able to find all of the home videotapes that the two dirtbags made after this was done. They were hidden above a light fixture in the bathroom ceiling. Many people believe that Carla had taken the tapes and then had her lawyer plant them back into the crime scene to be found. Because you did say that she did go and retrieve them. It was believed that she did. Oh, okay. However, it is also believed that Paul's lawyer actually had been holding on to the tapes. He was said to have sat on the tapes for 17 months. He was acquitted of obstruction of justice and had to face a disciplinary hearing by the Law Society of Upper Canada. So they must have had some kind of evidence that maybe he Mm -hmm. had them, but I'm really not sure which is the truth. Hmm. Either way, it's really fishy what happened with these tapes. These tapes were described as being horrific beyond measure. The authorities had to watch the tapes, but the jury were only made to listen to them. The video footage was too brutal to subject them to. At least there was that forethought to protect the jurors. Yeah. So, like, why are these tapes all over the place? They weren't all over the place. What had happened is they had just found one tape. So one tape had been left behind or was in a different spot. And that was of Jane Doe. Okay. Police didn't find the tapes for like 17 months. And then they were found in the ceiling above the light fixture. Right. So that should have been checked at the first walkthrough of the home, the first inspection. How were they just found 17 months later on another investigation? That seems very odd. Yes. And that's why there's so much speculation, I think, about the tapes. They believe that the tapes weren't there. Either Carla had them in her possession or Paul's lawyer had them in his possession. And then they, either one of them, whoever had them in their possession, had planted them back in the crime scene? Yes. For what purpose? Well, for Carla, it would have been to incriminate Paul, right? She's already gotten her deal if she was the one who had done it. Because it was like the next day after her deal was finalized. Hmm. The tapes show up. Oh, maybe it was her that hid them there. And then after her deal was like, okay, and this is where you can find the tapes. <laughs> yeah. There was more speculation. Okay. About it. It so, all seems very fishy. It is very fishy. Like there's a lots of discussion. Like we could talk almost an episode about the tapes. Oh, okay. What's on them, where they were, what happened. Because there's so many theories about it. Mm. Either way, likely some kind of foul play with the tapes. Because police should have found those. And why they found them later, I'm not sure. Yeah, like why were they even investigating the crime scene 17 months later? Yeah, 
or say Paul's lawyer knew they were there or I'm not sure what happened. Maybe after Carla knew her deal was good and solid, maybe that's when she's like, oh, the tapes are up there. Yeah. It's really hard to say. It was after these tapes were found that the willingness of Carla's involvement was brought into question. She appeared to be an eager, excited participant rather than a timid victim herself. Mm -hmm. Police question if her claim of battered wife syndrome was really what was going on during the crimes. And I'm not saying that she wasn't abused by Paul. She likely was. But I do think she was an active partner in the crimes they committed together. When you are more upset over champagne flutes being used than you are about your husband raping a girl in your home, that speaks volumes to your character. Yeah. Just saying. And it's reported that she was clearly enjoying herself while she was doing it. And that's why there's still so many hard feelings about her plea bargain. Mm -hmm. And like you said, if there was policies put in place that if new material comes out, new evidence, that plea bargain should be able to be modified. Exactly. Yeah. Or taken away completely. Because the plea bargain is made in the good faith that you're telling the whole truth. Right. And it was after this discovery of the tapes that Carla's sister Tammy is exhumed for further analysis of her corpse. And this is when they find the photo that Carla stuck in her coffin Mm. because they found Tammy's tape. Paul agrees to plead guilty of the mountain of charges against him as the Scarborough rapist in exchange for the charges of Tammy being stayed. This means that neither one of these dirtbags ever get charged for Tammy's death, even though they admitted to their involvement. What? Mm -hmm. Because Carla had made sure that she couldn't get any more charges. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, well, I don't want to be charged with Tammy's death, so I'll admit to all the Scarborough rapist cases. Yeah, and he takes a plea bargain too. Mm -hmm. Those poor parents. And they're probably feeling like, well, it's better to get him charged with all these multiple cases Mm -hmm. and let this one go because we already have him on the other two murder charges. Yeah. I suppose the only silver lining is that her cause of death was changed to either poison or strangulation. It couldn't be determined which one it was for certain. And the world now knew what really happened to her. Her poor parents. Can you even imagine? Because now this is the parents of the victim and the parents of the killer are the same parents. They're even the in-laws of the other killer. That would be so awful. It really would. There are so many more details of both trials that I could go through, but we would need another entire episode or two to cover it all. And I still want to give you aftermath updates. So I'm not going to go into more Mm -hmm. trial details. On September 1st, 1995, two years after being arrested, Paul is found guilty of two counts of first degree murder, two counts aggravated assault, two counts forcible confinement, two counts kidnapping, and one count of performing an indignity on a human body. Paul was sentenced to life imprisonment without possibility of parole for at least 25 years. He was classified as a dangerous offender, making it unlikely that he will ever be released. He has been kept in segregation units for his own safety, but has still been attacked and harassed by many other inmates on multiple occasions. Always kills me that we protect them. I know. One time even required a riot squad using gas to subdue the prisoners from coming after him. There was like a gang of them. In 2006, the Toronto Star reported that Paul admitted to sexually assaulting even more women than he was charged with. At least 10 more. He is also suspected of more murders. Oh, I didn't know that he was suspected of more murders. Mm -hmm. And even him and Carla together were suspected of more, but there was just no evidence to link them. There was no videotapes. Right. But there was bodies that had been young girls that had been raped and murdered Mm -hmm. and found in the same area around the same time. But if they took videotapes of the other three, then why wouldn't they take videotapes of the other ones? 
Unless they were just out getting a hamburger one night and saw a girl, didn't have their stuff with them, but couldn't resist. Oh, maybe. Hard to say. He also claimed that he thought he would be a good candidate for parole, even if it was just day parole. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And your first indicator of that is how quickly he works at a bus stop. Like, I know. It's ludicrous to think. In 2015, though, he applied for the day parole in Toronto, but was denied. In 2013, he was transferred to Millhaven Institution in Bath, Ontario, when the Kingston Penitentiary was closed down. He is reportedly kept in segregation from the other inmates inside that prison as well. In November of 2015, Paul managed to release a self-published book called A Mad World Order. It was a 631-page fictional ebook filled with violence. The book was removed off Amazon because of the public outrage at the time. How did he even get it up on Amazon in the first place? I don't know. And he's in segregation. And he's just writing about fictional crimes. Yes. Just like our last case. Not like your last case. (laughs) It was said it was fictional. I don't think he wrote about his crimes. Okay. There were no details that kind of overlapped. Mm -mm. Okay. Not that I'm aware of. But people were still like, he should not be making money off a book while he's in prison. No. And it was just described as very violent. Paul applied for day parole again in 2018 and just recently in 2021. And he was thankfully denied both times. So every few years he gets to go up again. He does get to continue to apply for parole. And hopefully there is never a judge who decides that Paul should be given a second chance and let out on good behavior. But Carla Mocha is the real story. She gets let out. We're going to get there. When Paul and Carla were on trial, they each underwent extensive psychological testing. Paul scored 35 out of 40 on the psychopathy checklist, deeming him a psychopath. That's a high score. That is a super high score. His psychiatric report stated that he had, quote, deviant sexual interests, and he met the diagnostic criteria of sexual sadism, voyeurism, and paraphernalia not otherwise specified. He met the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and met the requirement for a diagnosis of psychopathy. This meant he was, quote, more likely to repeat violent sexual offending. He showed minimal insight into his offending, which is consistent with file information that suggests he has been keen over the years to come up with his own unsubstantiated reasons for his criminal behavior. So he's just justifying everything he did. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's never apologized. Right. Carla had the same testing and she scored five out of 40 for the same test. That's quite a difference. Right. And I thought, does this mean then that she's just simply evil? Or is she's a better actor? Maybe. Think about her video with the cops. Oh, officer, could I take this book? Yeah. Where's my perfume? Oh, she's so terrible. I believe that Paul would have 100% killed and raped women with or without Carla's help. Would Carla have participated in such disturbing behavior without Paul? Maybe not. But she absolutely knew what she was doing was wrong and did it anyway Mm -hmm. and got enjoyment from it. While in prison, Carla graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology from Queens. That seems to be what they always study in jail. Is psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Probably to try and beat all the tests. Maybe. Or to try and figure themselves out. Maybe. Or, oh man, think how successful I'd be as a psychologist Mm -hmm. after going through all this, all the insight I'd have. In 2005, on the 4th of July, Carla was unconditionally released from prison after serving her 12-year slap on the wrist. Canada was, and I believe a lot of them still are, outraged over the deal that Carla got and the fact that she is a free woman. 
Many people feel strongly that she should be locked up the same way that Paul is. Carla seemed to display many narcissistic tendencies and reportedly never showed real remorse or accountability for her part in the crimes. She blamed Paul for everything. And even for her sister's death. Mm -hmm. It's one thing about a stranger, but she murdered her sister. Yeah. Your little sister. And not to have any remorse over that? No. It was all Paul's fault. That's so cold-hearted. I don't know that they were intending to kill Tammy. No. But they cleaned up and got rid of the evidence before they called 911. They were responsible for her death. Mm -hmm. They killed her. Carla moved to Quebec and tried to legally change her name to Emily Tremblay, which was denied permission to do so. And Tremblay is one of Quebec's most common surnames, so she obviously was wanting to just blend in. Mm -hmm. And I think she has kept a low profile, hasn't she? A little bit. She did for a while, but at one point the community does find out who she is. Okay. Subsequently, she has been known to go by Carla Leanne Teal, Leanne Teal, and Leanne Bordellis. That's interesting. This next part might surprise you. It surprised me. Carla ended up marrying and having children with her lawyer's brother. What? Seriously. How did those two meet? Did he work at the law firm too? I don't know. Or did her lawyer be like, hey, bro, I got this real catch of a girl I want to introduce you to. Like, how did that happen? She only has 10 more years in prison. But once she's out, you guys are going to knock it out of the park together. Yeah, she's just a murderer and a sexual sadist. But go for it, bro. Oh, that's weird. Right? Her lawyer's brother. Or is her lawyer been like, no, no, don't. Or did her lawyer totally believe her little story about having to go along with it and being the battered woman and because he had to sell the story true and her stuff was said and done before the tapes came out but she served 12 years he knew and would have seen those tapes that's disturbing as her lawyer he would have watched them well i guess how much control do you have over who your brother marries but still you think you'd have some really strong objections (laughs) If that was my brother, I would get charged with kidnapping because I would be tying him up in my basement so he couldn't marry her. And it would be worth it to go to jail for that. And I'm honestly not sure if they've remained together. Some sources it didn't sound like they had, but I'm not sure. They were married and had kids. Wow. They could still be married. I'm not sure. I wonder what it would be like to be her kid. Can you imagine finding out something about this about your mom? Yeah. But I'm sure she has told her kids the same story, that none of it's her fault. Mm Mm-hmm. I did what I had to do to survive. And maybe they would even look up to their mom like a hero. No way. I don't know. Can't imagine that. I don't know. Look what a strong mom we have. She was able to like get through all this and change her life. She's done her time. Yeah. Technically she has, right? Mm -hmm. That child-mother bond is a pretty big one. (laughs) Yeah. Part of Carla's release agreement included that she was forbidden to interact with people under the age of 16. At one point, the public became livid when they learned that Carla had been volunteering at her children's school. But as far as I could tell, no criminal action was taken against her. Probably just a warning given. Oh, yeah. And the whole thing just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And one thing I wanted to point out, I don't know if any of our listeners listen to Morbid, but I was listening to a listener tales that they have. And on this episode of their listener tales, someone had written a story about later finding out that they were in a mom's group chat with Carla and had shared personal information with her after she was released and had started a family. So the entire group chat was mortified when they found out who she really was. Oh, no. But I guess if you are trying to turn your life around, then you have to be doing some of these things that people are so horrified that she's doing. 
She was allowed to get married and have a family. Mm -hmm. But these other moms were like, we were sharing, like she knew where we lived. We were telling her things about our kids. Like, and it would just feel like a deceit, right? To find out later. Yeah. In pop culture, there have been a plethora of movies, TV shows, and documentaries made based off this case. There was one movie in particular where the man who played Paul said he later regretted playing a man like Paul and asked his fans not to watch the movie. So I won't even mention the name of it, but he was like, this isn't a quote, but he was basically like, this guy is so disgusting that I wish I hadn't played him. Even the things that he had to portray in the movie, he regrets. That says a lot, actually. It does. And I want to include something personal about each of the murder victims to remind us of the loss that took place during the reign of terror at the hands of Carla and Paul, not to mention the trauma that has been inflicted on the surviving victims. Tammy Lynn Homolka was an avid lover of sports. She loved to play soccer, but also was involved in cross-country running and track and field. She was a grade 10 student at Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School in St. Catharines when she was murdered. Leslie Aaron Mahaffey was a grade 9 student at M.M. Robinson High School in Burlington, Ontario. She was really close to her younger brother, Ryan. She was described as vivacious and funny. She loved baking and reading and wanted to be a marine biologist. Kristen Dawn French was described as sweet, smart, friendly, and loving. She was athletic and won awards for ice skating and was part of the Holy Cross Secondary School's girls rowing team. She was an honor student and was always helping others. And that is the story of two of Canada's most selfish and deviant dirtbags who delighted in sexual sadism and left destruction and chaos everywhere they went, the incredibly putrid and heartless Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Two murderous dirtbags. It's almost an understatement to say that. Yeah. There were so many details of that case that you shared that I hadn't heard before. Yeah, I learned a lot while researching this case, to be honest. Interesting. Because we often hear about the three murder victims, but not everybody else. Yeah. Or at least not as much about everybody else. Even Jane Doe, I hadn't heard about her till I had started researching. Or just how early he had started raping people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Or even his childhood, the way that he was raised. He was raised by a rapist and a sexual sadist and an abuser. And so that kind of behavior just all seemed perfectly normal to him. Yeah. And then when he found out about his dad, that's when things really escalated. I wonder why that would make him escalate. Wouldn't you be happy that that wasn't your dad? I think he looked up to his dad. He became like his dad. Oh, okay. I think his dad was probably his hero. He did a lot of the exact same things as his dad. Right. Yeah, I guess. I didn't see it that way. I was thinking like, your dad's a dirtbag, so you would automatically recognize your dad's a dirtbag and not want to be like him. But instead he he went the other way. Yeah, I think he put his dad up on a pedestal Mm -hmm. because he started from a young age. I'll look at dad's porno magazines. Mm -hmm. I'll peep in at at women like dad did. I'll masturbate watching women. I'll do all these different things. And then his dad at the same time was being charged with sexual assault. That's crazy. And it's nice that you shared a little bit about each one of them because I find sometimes we can get wrapped up in what the dirtbags details are and sometimes forget that these are actual people that they are committing these atrocious crimes to. Mm -hmm, For sure. And I wish I could have covered all of the victims, but I didn't even bring this in here, but there was a publication ban during parts of the trials. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those names weren't even released. Probably at the choice of the victims. Yeah. And I think that's probably for the best with them. Mm Mm-hmm. But we always hope here on Buried Motives that we can help be the victim's voice, even in a small way. Yeah, to tell their story. Mm -hmm. 
But that's it for me this week. And I know Melissa has another case already in the works for us for next week. Until then. See ya. Bye. Jackson. <laughs> stupid trucks, stupid trucks. Oh my, come crazy. Chapstick break. I'm going to punch it again. <laughs> That's why it's not working anymore. <laughs> I punch it, it's still sulking. <laughs> do, 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 waiting for the train to pass. And now there's a truck. Yep. Sorry, you might have to say that again because my stomach was really oh. loud. <laughs> Mine's been doing the same thing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's not an earthquake, you guys. We just ate lunch. <laughs> <laughs> the Scarborough, the Scarborough, known as the Scarborough, Scarborough. Service Canada 247. One unclaimed deposit found in your files. Claim oh, now via Interact. Claim, Christy, claim. To claim your deposit, reply Y for <gasps> yes. You should claim it. <gasps> it might be, be the millionaire. millionaire. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'll stay poor. That was a weird sound my mouth just made. <laughs> they also agree to refrain from engaging in any further criminal. 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 They also refrain. They also agree to refrain from engaging in any further criminal. Criminal. You need to stand up and do a jumping jack. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Our theme song. <laughs> hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.